Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is surviving isolation. We are excited to welcome Tiana Tozer as our guest today. Grab yourself a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I'm Pastor Amanda Zensalo, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast, and... I'm Tiana Tozer, and the most important things or the highlights of my resume are I grew up on a farm outside of Boise, Idaho. It was an idyllic childhood, and you never, ever recover from an idyllic childhood. I was run over by an intoxicated driver when I was 20. It took four years and 34 reconstructive surgeries to walk again, and to date I've had 36 surgeries. Wow. I'm on my seventh or eighth rendition of what I want to be and do when I grow up, which includes jobs from customer service to corporate. I played on the USA women's wheelchair basketball team for five years, competing in two Paralympics where I helped my team win the silver in Barcelona and the bronze in Atlanta. I was a humanitarian aid worker for five years in Iraq and Sudan. My humanitarian aid career was cut short when I was extracted from the civil war in Sudan. And the reason we call it an extraction rather than an evacuation is because the UN screwed it up so badly that it was an extraction, not an evacuation. I've been in three war zones. I'm the author of several short stories. I lost my eye in Iraq, Minority Report, The Brat, and I'm currently working on my memoir, The Statistic. Also, you should know that I have acquired the little known and even less appreciated skill of chicken hypnosis, which wow. helps fill hours and hours of time when you are on a farm. <laughs> Very nice. That is awesome. <laughs> so we invited you on to hang out with us and to talk a little bit because you have, first of all, an amazing life story, but also because you have an amazing amount of experience with isolation and time spent in places where it's unsafe to be outside or there are restrictions placed on your ability to move and to be out in public. And so we thought this would be an incredible gift to kind of grab some of that wisdom that you carry. So what is your experience with isolation and how you handle these kinds of things? Where does this kind of stuff come from for you? So it started many long years ago when I was a six-year-old and my parents decided they wanted to build a house out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. We moved out there one summer when it was just a frame. We all slept in the living room on sleeping bags. There was no running water. There were a few chickens. And so what there was to do was to hang out with the family, cook, and play. And that's when we learned how to hypnotize chickens. The well drillers taught us. And you can spend hours hypnotizing chickens. And so this was my idyllic childhood. Eventually, we got running water. We moved out in the summer. We got running water that Christmas. But still, the walls were unfinished. The neighbors were how far away? Well, our nearest friendly neighbor was about two miles away. Uh Our nearest unfriendly neighbor, at first they were friendly and then became unfriendly, were about two city blocks away. Okay. So you actually had to walk. You could take the road, but it was easier to go through the desert. And this was my childhood. And back in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have computers. We had black and white TVs with five channels. That's it, kids, five channels. And you had to get up and change the channel. And you had to get up and change the channel. And not only that, so we had a black and white TV forever. And then we also had restricted TV. We could watch what our parents watched, which was usually the news and MASH. And then we could watch Saturday morning cartoons till a certain time. And then we could watch the wonderful world of Disney, 
the Muppets and Wild Kingdom. And then our father would occasionally have us watch historical dramas like Masada or Shogun. And we watched them as a family because he was a history professor and he could fill in all the blanks. So very limited video or entertainment options. And we didn't even own a VCR the entire time I was growing up. The first time we got a VCR was when I was in the hospital. So we had to find all sorts of things to amuse ourselves. We played badminton. We used to play croquet until the middle of the night because there's nobody out there. So as long as we didn't wake the parents, we were fine. It was really hard (laughs) to see the balls when it got like towards 3 a.m. in the morning. And then the one luxury item we had was a swimming pool. So we invented all sorts of games with inner tubes and we formed the frog search and rescue committee because it seemed like every tree frog from around the desert was in our pool. My brother tried to ride the cow. I spent my springs walking around with just a trail, like five to seven baby goats just following me around. And then we had chores. So we had to learn how to entertain ourselves. And I got to tell you, there was nobody out there my age. There was a kid who lived two miles away who was a year older than Mark. And eventually a young girl who was four years older than me moved out. But she's the closest person to my age. And so we came up with all sorts of games. And occasionally our parents would play tag or fox and geese with us in the snow. So these are all awesome ways that set you up then to have a creative imagination about how to keep yourself entertained, right? Yes. And the only thing that I wasn't restricted on was books. And when we went to the library, I would come back out with like a stack of books, as many as I could carry between my chin. And I loved to read. I often hid to read because here's the thing also that helps kids deal with boredom. You could never say you were bored in my household, particularly around my mother, because if you said you were bored, she would find some chore for you to do. Yep. So I was never bored. <laughs> and also with my brother as my main playmate, I mean, we had fights and stuff, but, you know, Battleship is zero fun by yourself. So I hated playing Monopoly, but we had all sorts of games. We had Senate, which is Egyptian. We had the Hanafuda flower game, which is Japanese. We had Mahjong. He liked to play chess. I didn't like to play chess. We played a lot of Clue. Yeah. You learn compromise. Yes. And then my second experience with isolation was after I was run over by an intoxicated driver. I spent a month and three days in the ICU. And if you think you're bored being in the house, try being in an ICU room. It is a 10 by 10 room. The window is so far you can't look out of it because most people in ICU are mercifully unconscious. I was conscious every second of every day when I was not in surgery. And the only time I got out of that room for about the first three weeks was on the way to surgery. And then I had this really fabulous nurse and she started taking me on bed walks around the hospital. And I like to go and see the babies because that was the only place in the hospital where people weren't sick and dying. Sure. They're perfect. and They're like freshly baked loaves out of the oven. And, <laughs> and it's boring. And back then there were only five TV channels. And my mom didn't immediately buy a VCR. And I wasn't going to watch soap operas. I watched a ton of Sesame Street that summer. Yeah. You get stuck. I have been in the hospital for a three-week stint. Luckily, I could move around, but I was pregnant, so there wasn't a lot of moving around that was going to happen. And also, I was so I couldn't read, so my favorite pastime had been taken away from me because my brain was so foggy, I couldn't concentrate. And also, the TV went off. The TV went off about, I think, about midnight and didn't come on again until 4 a.m. in the morning, and sometimes you're up completely at night. 
And so I'd start to count the dots on my ceiling, or I had some stuffed animals that I would play with, or I'd bug the nurses. And I was hooked up to about six machines, and the bathroom was right there, but I never got up to use the bathroom. And that was just a month and three days in ICU. And then I spent another two months on the orthopedic floor. Man. And nobody, we had all these hospital technicians and nobody could figure out how to make the clockwork on the VCR, which is funny. (laughs) (laughs) So these experiences then, when you grew up, so to speak, and took on your work overseas in Iraq and Sudan, how did the coping skills that you learned, that creativity that you learned on the farm and growing up, and then the coping skills just to survive the kind of traumatic experience that you did as you were healing from being hit by the car, how did you kind of pull those things back and incorporate that in your time in Iraq and Sudan? It's an interesting question because when I was first in Iraq, I lived in an apartment complex with other humanitarian aid workers. So there were other people and we invented stupid games. It felt like there was a lot of whining and complaining. At that point in time, we had DVDs. So I had the entire DVD set of Buffy. We did yoga and exercising. Seemed like it took longer to do your laundry. And then there was work and we worked a lot. We also played games and we cooked and we cooked some interesting things because you don't have the same ingredients. So I had lamb lasagna one time. That sounds actually really delicious. Yeah, it was actually pretty good, but you had to be creative. And we played a lot of Scrabble when I was overseas. And I did carry my Scrabble board with me and I could read and that was good. And then that was also when I got onto Facebook because Facebook was just coming into being in Iraq. And that's why it says one of my hobbies is Kurdish dancing because Sherazan and can't remember who else is they're like you're not on Facebook we're gonna put you on Facebook and so they came up with all my hobbies (laughs) (laughs) so I'm curious yeah is it something where it took you a certain amount of time to figure out you just gotta go with it or is it because of your background that you just sort of hit the ground running or did it take you some time to adapt in these new environments when I first ended up in the Middle East I was in Kuwait And what was most stressful to me is I was in a new job and we had a regional director who liked to make us work. And he would always come on the weekends to make us work through the weekends. And I remember him asking, he's like, I need a budget for your entire program. And I've been there about two days. And I remember having a Skype call with my friend Tammy and I was like, what am I going to do? I'm not cut out for this and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't the isolation or the new country. It was getting into the work and figuring out what to do in that situation. And actually, when I lived in Kuwait, I made friends with a group of Eritreans, the woman who cleaned our office and brought us coffee, which is very common when you're a humanitarian aid worker. Her name was Sanayat, and she was a fabulous cook. And she invited me to these coffee get-togethers, and they stayed up super late, which was not super good for me. But I really enjoyed hanging out with people who were not my fellow humanitarian aid workers or humanitarian aid workers who were from different countries like Mm -hmm. Serbia and India. And but then I was moved to the Basra military base and that was really restrictive. But I didn't have a lot of issues adapting to that. I lived in half of a container. There was a bed and a bathroom and a shower and a desk and I lived there and then I would get up in the morning and at first I went into an office with about four other people and then they moved everybody into Basra but because it was so blonde, tall and American looking, 
I could not move into Bostra, so as the fallback position. So then it was just me in another half of a container, surrounded by all these private security guys who were escorting all the oil people out to the oil fields. That was really isolating. When the Brits owned the military base, there was only one bar on it and a very small PX. And I made friends with some of the, I was on a compound with about 200 men and there were about five women. And I made friends with some of the guys. They were all young, way younger than I was. And occasionally we'd go to the bar and I would see people when I ate. I would see people at breakfast in the morning and I'd go work. I'd see them at lunch. And then I would go work out and then go to dinner. And occasionally we'd go to the bar. Occasionally I'd go to the PX. Occasionally I'd hang out with other humanitarian aid workers. But that was about it. And it was about three by five miles. Now, when the Americans took over, they put in a green beans coffee, a gigantic PX, a Burger King, a movie theater, and so many gyms. And plus, every Friday night was surf and turf. And so I made friends with these two sergeant majors. And I met them in church. And they had every single church service you could imagine. One of the first things they built was this giant wooden church. And so I would then start meeting people for coffee at Green Beans, or I would meet the sergeant majors. It was Jen and Jen. I would meet them at one of the big mess halls for Friday night surf and turf. I convinced a bunch of the security guys to start learning Arabic. We played Scrabble. We did all sorts of things. So when we first started talking about possibly having you here on the church basement, you brought up this experience of the military base. And one of the things that I found fascinating was that you talked about in that isolation, you could have just stayed in the container and not really gone out. And right now we're being asked during social isolation for folks who are listening to this years from now, it is May of 2020 and we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And so people can't really go out and hang out with other people, but you talked about the importance of setting a schedule. We wanna talk some about like, what is it like to be alone and doing this kind of social isolation? What is it like to have to be with the same people all the time in your social isolation? You talk about that a bit about the military base, like you had the same kind of crew of folks that you were with the whole time. And what is the gift of setting that schedule? Well, the gift of having, and on the military base, they called a battle routine. And the gift of having a schedule is that it really, and I don't know how or why it does it, but it keeps you from getting depressed or anxious. And it's really, really important because I got out of my battle routine and I was visiting with the base psychologist. He's, yeah, you're out of your battle routine. And so you need to get back into it. And on Mondays through Fridays, I keep a pretty strict schedule. I'm usually up and at work by eight and I'm working an eight hour day. Occasionally the start time varies and I end around four or five, depending on whether I've had lunch or not. And just as if I were going into the office, I let how I feel at the end of the day dictate what I'm going to do when I move from the living room to the bedroom or if I'm going to stay in the living room but convert it into the craft room. I'm usually in bed by eight at the latest. A lot of times I'm in bed right at 5 p.m. just because I like to have my feet up. And I'm also used to having one room with just a bed in it. And so there's not a lot of places to sit. And I love my bed. But lights out is almost always between 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. And that's my schedule. Now on weekends, it's different because I treat it like it's my weekend. On Friday, I log off my work computer and I move it to my desk in the dining room, which I'm not working at. I've made the living room my work area. And the schedule isn't so important. I try to do one productive thing on a project that I've planned for myself. 
and one or two chores, things that I need to do. I always make my bed every single morning. When you are in a small space, at least for me, it's super important for things to be neat because if it just makes your life messy and your your mind messy if things are messy. Now, that being said, my living room's a little bit messy right now because I'm working on several projects, but normally it's very neat. I run the dishwasher on Sunday, empty it on Monday. That's my schedule. And you stick to it and you find that this kind of a habit that you created way back when you would have had these opportunities to learn that is part of what keeps you grounded in this current time then of social isolation. Schedules are super important. It's also super important to recognize when you have a thousand squirrels walking over your grave and you're so distracted that you can't get anything done that you need to take a break. And whether that's walking around the block or going to get coffee, and we are in social isolation, but I have a friend who lives nearby and she's come over twice and we've put chairs out in the driveway and yelled back and forth with our own, you know, (laughs) bring your own coffee. When you find yourself getting out of that routine, how hard is it to get back in? Is it automatic at this point or does it take you a couple of days? The first two weeks that I was in isolation, it was fine. The third week, literally, there must have been a thousand squirrels in my yard because I was so distracted. The fourth week was fine. The fifth week, I got some bad news from France and that distracted me a little bit. Now I'm back in my groove. But you also have to be kind to yourself. When you get out of your schedule, you can't beat yourself up about, oh my gosh, I haven't been at my computer for eight hours today. Oh, I took 10 extra minutes for my coffee break. It's a time to be kind to yourself and recognize that this is difficult. This is difficult for everyone. But schedule is important. We're dealing with isolation for a length of time now that we're hitting holidays and we're hitting birthdays and other sort of milestones in our lives. Is it important to keep it as a milestone and a celebration or do you say, I'm just going to celebrate next year? That's an interesting question. If you're overseas where it's not important, it's not important. Okay. If you're here, I think it is important to celebrate milestones. Even if they're small. It doesn't have to be a giant, big, huge birthday party. What you'd planned. I mean, everybody, their plans are going downhill. I was supposed to go to South Korea for two weeks. I haven't had a vacation since I started my new job, but oh well. Mm -hmm. I just had my 52nd birthday. Congratulations. Thank you. It's amazing (laughs) I made it this far. And And you did awesome things for that 52nd birthday. I did. And this is what I did. I was like, how can I make this fun? Because normally I'm not big on my birthday anymore. So sort of do little things and get cards from certain people and go out to dinner with certain people. So I'm like, how can I make this fun? This is my really good friend. She's like, let's do a Zoom call. And I'm like, okay, but how do I make it fun? So I put together Tozer party packs and I went to Fred Meyer's and there was almost nothing left in the party aisle. So I bought those little invitations that kids send out, come to my party. Sure. I wanted noisemakers, but instead I got recorders, which are noisemakers, but they just weren't the kind that are really fun. And then I thought I'd scored party hats, but when I got home, they turned out to be those candy holders, like an upside down (laughs) party hat. Sure. I bought many bottles of champagne. I bought fancy cupcakes from Whole Foods. I gave everybody a little plastic container because they usually go home with food from my parties. And then I put in a couple extra things. I put in some hand sanitizer, I had some little bottles for some people. 
I put in candles for the cupcakes. And it's for me, it's important to keep it small because if you have too many people on a Zoom call, it just gets crazy. The morning of, I got up early. I'd packed the party packs with my gloves on and, you know, being hygienic. And then I dropped them off to four people and there were instructions. And instructions said the time in the little card. And it said, no mocking the champagne. I have some friends who are champagne snobs. <laughs> said, I'm sorry, due to the elastic shortage, party hats no longer have elastic. You're creative. You can do it. And then finally, bring a fun story or memory of Tiana. We started our Zoom party at 5.30. Everybody brought their own drink. I had cut my little thing short and put two bobby pins in. Mr. Appleberry had duct taped it to his head. Lissica had hers on with a clip. And about 10 minutes into the party, the Appleberries had dressed up, Mr. and Mrs. Appleberry in their 70s, and they're just a lovely couple and part of the Tozer gang. And they had dressed up, and he was wearing like a tuxedo shirt and a red bow tie and suspenders, and she was wearing what looked like a fancy red dress. And he said, honey, will you go get that out of the cupboard? And she stood up, and all she had on was her underwear. <laughs> and then he stood up to help her, and all he had on was his boxers. It was hysterical. We were laughing hysterically. <laughs> and then we caught up and shared stories, and at the end, we put candles in our cupcakes and we all blew them out together now that being said 52 is not a milestone birthday but then shortly after on the 30th lissa turned 50. so what we did for her is we put together a coronavirus survival package and that consisted of a great bottle of scotch whiskey it consisted of a tranche of bacon and i gave her five rolls of toilet paper and Kari gave her one we're all thankful to God that we are not quarantined with Lissa because she uses so much darn toilet paper. <laughs> and then I got her a toilet paper cake. Her friend Hazel gave her stuff for gin and tonics. I got her a gift certificate to Powell's because she loves to read. Kari, her sister, and my good friend got her a gift certificate to Grubhub. Kari made up this little ditty for her birthday and we went over there and delivered this giant box and sang her ditty and Kari forgot the words I'd been practicing. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen Lissa Faklimt. I've never seen her cry in my life. And she was very touched. And then we had a lovely Zoom meeting. Luckily, the Appleberries didn't try to top their underwear thing because that would have been a little bit awkward. And on top of that, she asked 50 of Lissa's friends to write a memory or a story and she printed them all out, wrapped them up with rubber, and put them in a jar. And that was her main birthday gift, that she gets to take these out and read them. And she had a good birthday. Oh, and we also had dinner delivered to her. So there are totally things you can do to mark celebrations. And you just have to be creative. I think it's important. My husband wanted to skip something, and I can't remember if it was his own birthday or something. And... I tried to remind him very gently that the policy was there was always a bottle of champagne somewhere because you have to celebrate the big and the little. And if you're having a terrible day, sometimes you pop the champagne to make it better. But just and because love... it's not what you thought it would be doesn't mean it can't be great and fun. It doesn't mean it's totally. going to be automatically terrible. Right. And the creativity that you bring to this, the kind of the joyful playfulness of the ideas, I think is something that is incredibly helpful for us all to think about right now. I'll drop a little bit of theology into this, since this is a Christian podcast, to say that God is present in so many little moments and in those unexpected joys and those ways in which we can be watching for that kind of creative playfulness. You, I think, have such a gift 
for taking your experiences and creating that joyful playfulness. If folks watched the Palm Sunday worship service of Central Lutheran, it was Tiana's idea for us all to have silly hats for the day. And that kind of playfulness that I hear roots back to your childhood on the farm is such a tremendous gift in this time. Now, I also know that it's not always super easy to find the joyful playfulness. Sometimes there are moments where things are really hard and depression is a real thing. And as someone who's been through such incredibly challenging circumstances in your life, I know that you have some wisdom around how to kind of recognize and know. So when you get sad, how do you manage it? What are the things that you do, not just because it's wisdom that you've learned over decades and your own innate playfulness that God has gifted you with, but it's also lived experience. So what do you do when you get sad? I have this really awesome pastor who I talk to (laughs) a lot of times when I get sad. But I think it also depends. If I felt myself, and I'm far enough into my 52 years that I know when I'm super depressed and I need help. And you have to ask for help. And you ask the people who are closest to you. And if necessary, I mean, I've done some online counseling when I was overseas. That's not a shameful thing. You have to be able to ask for help. But also, you have to reach out and be connected. One of the things is, what's different? What do you recommend for people in isolation? One of the things that you had on the questions was, how do you deal with it if you're isolated? Or how do you deal with it if you're with people? Well, if you're isolated, it's important to spend time with people, even if you're 10 feet away or on Zoom or on a Zoom call. It's important to have those interactions. And if you're in a group of people, it's important to have your alone time. And you need to have some alone time. So for me, if I were feeling down, I would reach out to one of my close friends. I would reach out to you. I would want to talk about my feelings. But it's also, this is a chance for us to eat dinner together as a family. This is a chance to teach your kids some of those life skills, like how to do the laundry or cook. I mean, my mother, I spent one summer planning all the breakfasts and doing all the shopping for that. And then the next summer doing all the dinners. So your job as parents is to make sure that you can launch your kids into the world, able to do those things. And now's a perfect time. I mean, my friend Ellen is teaching her girls how to change the oil on a car, how to change a tire. I mean, this is a great time to be creative. I heard of one family who they have family movie night. They've watched all the Harry Potters. And at the end, they all dressed up as a Harry Potter character. And now they're doing Lord of the Rings to play family games. I used to love to play games with my parents to really spend time together and learn what you like and what still irritates you. That's awesome. So one of the other things that we know is that folks are feeling in this time, and there's a ton of overwhelm, and there's a ton of concern about just looking inward. And so what are the things that you would suggest from your experiences to help other people to kind of get out of ourselves? If you know people who are single or who are isolated or Gleaning from your joyful creativity and your playfulness, what are some of the ideas that you have for how we can be looking outside of ourselves and feeling connected to others in that way? Checking in on people when this first hit, I was, I mean, I normally talk to my mother about once a month and I'm talking to her about twice a week. I'm talking to my brother a lot more. I called all of my elderly relatives, including my grandparents' foster son, because they don't have any kids. And I just want to make sure that they were being taken care of. I started organizing the church 
to run errands, but I mean, that hasn't really taken off. I've run a few for people, did some grocery shopping, picked up some meds, send stuff. Listen, Kari, like Kari lives walkable distance from me and I still put an Easter card in the mail and told her that the Easter bunny had been seconded for the coronavirus and gave her a little bottle of hand sanitizer. And then I did the same thing for Lissa, but that came back. So then I put it in her birthday package. Write letters. You know, this is a great time to teach your youngsters how to write letters. Yeah, and I've been Grandpa sending postcards to, to my sister to try to help boost her spirits. She's going through chemotherapy at this moment. Yeah. So donate blood. I started doing yoga with my cousin. It was fun to spend that time with him <laughs> and actually to do the relaxing. And there are yoga classes online that can help you with that. That was great. There are all sorts of ways you can check on your neighbors. You can, you know, offer to help people. When I'm going out to the grocery store, I check on my neighbors because I live in a condo to see if they need anything. I hear people doing online games, like playing Settlers of Catan online, which I don't know how you would do that. but <laughs> I've heard of there, it. It's being done. There are it some committed folks, committed folks to these things. <laughs> yes. I mean, I was so grateful when my friend Kari called me to FaceTime with me and I hadn't even asked her to. So letting people know that you're thinking about them, write that Christmas letter. I'm going to write my Christmas letter and send it out to everybody, except for I'm going to call it the Happy Frog Day letter. Nice. Because <laughs> I got to catch up since 2013. So Nice. Okay. Oh, and I send stuff to my mom, too. I'm curious with your connections around the world, how are other parts of the world dealing with this? What have you heard? Well, I got to be honest with you. I'm a little bit tired of the whinging that's going on here in America because other lockdowns are a lot more strict. Sure. My French family, I refer to them as my sister, my mother, my brother. My French sister was in the middle of moving to Bordeaux for a new job and her husband was in Gaillac, which is about three hours away. And they were in opposite places when lockdown occurred and they haven't seen each other since lockdown occurred. My French niece is up in Paris where she's a nurse and she works in the ICU unit. And her boyfriend was diagnosed with uh, leukemia in December. And so she can't go home anymore. So she's staying with his best friend and their brother. My French mother, her cancer just metastasized. That was the bad news that I got. And she is now in the hospital and nobody can visit her. So I've had a couple of phone calls with her. My sister's youngest daughter is up near Paris because she was a boarding school learning how to work with horses. And she's in lockdown there. And then Marion, the middle child, is with Isabel. And then I'm hoping that Maman will be able to go home with my brother Thierry and his wife, Martine. And their daughter is in Toulouse and their son is in Mexico. And they can go out for one hour a day and they can only grocery shop for one hour. They can only be in the store for one hour. And if you know anything about French culture, you don't usually get your groceries all in one place. There's no mail, so you can't even get mail. And yeah, they get one hour for either exercise and you only get one hour in the store and that's it. And then if you're an essential worker, like my sister is, because she works for the Water Bureau, she said to me, how else are people going to wash their hands? She has a passport. She has to have proof that she's an essential worker. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So suck it up, America. It's definitely different. And we can see the difference in caseloads because of this kind of intensive lockdown versus kind of our attempt at being shut down that we have going on here. But the question that we should be asking of ourselves is not how many people is it okay to have die from this virus? The question that we should all be asking ourselves is how many people is okay in my family to have die from this virus? And then also, 
if we as a community don't care for our most vulnerable people, who are we? What does that say about us? Because it's minorities, it's people who are low income, it's people with disabilities, the most vulnerable elderly people who are bearing the brunt of this. Absolutely. And if you can't go get your hair cut, well, I think somebody's life is more important than that. Again, I'll bring in that faith element of, you know, our faith compels us to care for those in the world who are more vulnerable than ourselves. And this is a powerful opportunity to show how our faith informs our life and our daily life choices. Not easy, but certainly my faith is what compels me to stay home and save as many lives as I certainly can. Yes. I mean, I think of the refugees in Syria from my time in Turkey. I mean, we're Americans. Even the least of us has so much more. I remember speaking to a woman in Sudan after the war had broken out who was on her last day of food. And she had eight mouths to feed. And people in Sudan live on a dollar a day. We have resources here and things that we can access. And for those of us who are upset, not because of loss of income or because of an uncertain future, but because we can't go get our haircut or go visit grandma, I'm sorry, that is a first world problem. And now you see some of the stuff that military veterans are dealing with when they come home because they're used to people having their back and obeying the rules. And here people are like, me, 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 me. And that is one of the things that causes depression and PTSD and the bad reentry for military people, in my opinion. That's a really fascinating insight. So another piece that we wanted to ask you about, and thank you folks for sticking with us because Tiana, we're so grateful for your shared wisdom here. But when we think about this time and the opportunities that are in front of us right now, based on your experience, how can this kind of a time where we are slowing down and learning new things and doing all the sorts of things, how can we make this a useful time? Now, not to set this up as folks, you better have learned five languages and learned 18 new crafts and your kid better be you know, a whiz kid by the time we're done with this, because that's probably an unfair expectation of ourselves, given that most of us are not accustomed to the level of chemicals coursing through our body in the fight, flight, or freeze response. And we don't have training for this. So we want to keep our expectations kind, as you talked about earlier, Tiana. And how can this time be an opportunity for those of us who are in it? So first of all, I'm just going to talk about those long lists you have of things you never get around to. I have a huge list. Scanning photos, planting my garden, putting my aunt's photos in that album, taking care of all that stuff. And then I even make work for myself. So I put up a shawl from Laos. One weekend, I pounded four holes in the wall. The next weekend, none of the nails went in. And so the next weekend, I had to repair and paint them. And then sort of last on my, if I get super desperate, is cleaning out the garage and the downstairs storage unit. Now, I have to tell you, when I was recovering from my hip surgery, my mother came to stay with me. And all I wanted to do was watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And my friend Eric called me from work and he's like, hey, are you getting lots of good TV in? And I said very humbly, I was like, well, my mother won't let me watch TV unless I've accomplished at least one thing during the day. And you have to remember, I was like 42 at this time or 45 or something. And I had to do one productive thing. Now, that being said, on days that I don't feel like doing it, I give myself a break. I'm not beating myself up because I didn't get everything done. And there are some days that I'm doing nothing. 
other than what I want to do. It's realizing that it doesn't have to be the entire day. It can be 10 minutes at a crack and then you can move on. It doesn't have to be punishing. Or you can like say, okay, I'm going to finish this and then I'll read a chapter of my book. But that aside, there is something very simple about this time that reminds me of being in Africa. And this is what I like about isolation. And if you let it be, there's a simplicity of life and some of the first world problems can melt away. And it's a time when you can reflect and stuff that I worried about in the U.S. would sort of fall away. Like I didn't worry about holidays or mail piling up on my desk or too many clothes. Just some of that stuff fell away because life was so simple there. It was routine and schedule and eating. And we just hung out and talked. And that's one of the things I love doing with my family is hanging out and talking. I love their stories and creating community. And so I grew up on a farm and it was my safe place. I felt safe there and I was never bored or anxious. That's what I mean about having an ideal childhood. And when I got to be an adult, that place for me was my grandmother's farm. And my grandmother lived through every major, I think she was born in 1910, and she lived through so many major things, the Depression, World War II, the 1918 influenza, which she always spoke about. She had a documentary on it that she made me watch about three times because she'd forget that we'd watched it. And it was just a safe, comforting place. And one of the things, my grandmother was a woman of incredible faith. And she never worried. She knew that God was going to take care of her and that it would all turn out the way it was supposed to be. And one of the things that I have learned, I had this epiphany in Sudan. All my life, I thought that there was better than here. And I was always trying to get to there. And I have this incredible list of achievements and all these things I've done. And I'm stressed out if I'm not doing stuff. But the truth is, as soon as you get to there, there becomes here. And then you just have a new there. It's a cycle of insanity. So I was in the middle of Sudan. I was the state director for Southern Kordofan. We had really bad leadership. This is when I wrote the only 10 things you need to know and do to be a good leader. But this was also when I was like, what I really want is to be happy. I want to not be annoyed all the time. I want to not be annoyed when someone gets my vanilla latte wrong. I want to not be annoyed when I see people on their phones. I want to learn how to live in the present because people in Sudan live in the present. So I came home and I read A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And I'm getting much better at living in the present. I don't know about you, but I have very few days when I'm at peace, when everything feels right with the world. But when they happen, they are amazing. My birthday was one of them this year. Lissa's birthday was one of them this year. Oh my gosh, I had two this year. That's amazing. And so living in the present, it's so hard. And really, I suck at it. But every day is a new day to try and do that and to really take a deep breath and enjoy what you have around you. Because in the end, it's not these big, grand things that we do. It's the little moments that make up our lives and finding your safe space and finding your peace within all this and finding your faith and knowing that God has a plan for you. And dang it, patience is a virtue and it's not one of mine. I wish you'd hurry the heck up with it. (laughs) But, you know, that's what it is. It's not just about surviving the isolation. It's about learning to thrive in the isolation. Tiana, thank you so much. It is such an absolute delight to spend time listening and hearing your story and learning. And I hope that 
folks can take from this and incredible rich ideas, uh, tips and tricks, and just the knowledge that we can do these hard things and that there are folks who have been through this who can give us guidance and wisdom along the way. And so thank you so much for joining us in this today, Tiana. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And just to say one last thing, don't think I don't have bad days. I do. Everybody does. But I do know that I'm very well off and that it can always get worse. (laughs) (laughs) At least I'm not being bombed right now, right? Right? (laughs) Yep. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. We look forward to being back in your ears again soon. If you have a question for us or if you have a topic suggestion, we would love to hear from you at podcast at centralportland.org. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.